I'm going to look at Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read the first uh, 20 verses or so. Mark chapter, Gospel of Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With, who, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Amen. I read for you the first 20 verses of the Gospel of Mark, but I really want to focus in on two verses this morning. And that is verses 14 and 15. But I always think it's good to get a context of where these verses are in Scripture and why they are there. And the title of my message this morning is The Ministry of Jesus Christ. As I look out over evangelical churches, sometimes I get concerned when I see that just the general approach of their ministry tends to... to steer wide of what I would call clear gospel preaching and the approach that Jesus used in his ministry. And instead, it focuses on popular techniques and, and methods that will please people and get them in the door and build a large church, if you can call it that. And so I think it's important that at time to time we come back to some of these core truths of the gospel and for me, what I've been doing here recently is just looking in general at Jesus' ministry. What typified his ministry? What were the aspects and the characteristics of his ministry that you say, this is really what he did. This was his approach to ministry. Because there are all kinds of different approaches. We can read all kinds of different books about how we should approach ministry and how we should do church. But I think the best book is the Gospels. 
the best books. And so we look carefully here, what we find is we don't really have to ask too many questions of how did Jesus approach his ministry and what was his ministry really like. In fact, Mark sums it up for us very well in verses 14 and 15 here when he says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This, friends, is a summary of Jesus' entire ministry. If you want to put it in just a sentence or two, in a few words, this sums it up. And I think it's very significant what Mark says here. And by the way, the other gospel writers have very similar summaries of Jesus' ministry. And so let's look very carefully at what Mark says about Jesus' ministry. And the first thing that we see here is that he says that he came into Galilee preaching or proclaiming the gospel of God. This is a very important word here, the word preach or proclaim. Jesus preached. You realize that that was Jesus' primary ministry method. It was preaching. And oftentimes preaching to to many people, large crowds of, of thousands. Sometimes preaching to a smaller group of people. But it seems that wherever he went, there were large groups that followed him. And so this word that is used here, it it says that he uh, proclaimed or, or that he preached, depending on your translation. Some translations may even say he heralded. The Greek word here is keruso. And it is a specific word that is really only referred to in the sense of preaching. Strong's concordance says to be a herald, to officiate as a herald, to proclaim after the manner of a herald, always with the suggestion of formality and gravity and an authority which must be listened to and obeyed. This isn't just sort of like, hey guys, you know, what do you think about this? And we know that there was definitely an authority in Jesus' preaching. He wasn't just communicating facts. Preaching communicates truth with a tone of urgency and an emphasis upon application. Here is the truth. Here is what you need to believe about it. And here is how it will affect your life. It doesn't refer to dialogue. It doesn't refer to just talking one-on-one. There's more of a formality and gravity to this word. If we go to the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we have a very interesting picture of this word which gives us something to look at, to understand what does it mean to preach in a biblical sense. And I want you to look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1. There's a Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus would have been familiar with it. The gospel writers would have been familiar with it. Same type of usage of Greek words there. And we read in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1, Does not wisdom call? 
does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way at the crossroads she takes her stand beside the gates in front of the town at the entrance of the portals she cries aloud to you O men i call and my cry is to the children of man O simple ones learn prudence O fools learn sense here for i will speak noble things and from my lips will come what is right this is a beautiful picture of preaching in fact people have said that this idea of wisdom that john echoes it in john chapter 1 verse 1 when he says the word logos wisdom is the word that here this is talking about christ in fact in his preaching but what I want to point out to you is in verse 1 where it says, does not wisdom call, it uses the exact same word that Mark uses in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel where it says Jesus proclaimed the gospel. And we see, how was it proclaimed? On the street corners, in the marketplace, those places where people would gather, where it would be natural to gather and then preach to them and tell them something important, something that would change their lives, something that they needed to believe, something that would change the way they believed and would change then the way they behaved. And that's the picture that we have of preaching to preach is to proclaim truth publicly and call people to believe and take appropriate action that corresponds to that truth. So this was Jesus' main method of ministry according to Mark. According to Matthew as well, and we can look at the other Gospels, they also indicate this. His main method of ministry was preaching. He didn't come to establish interfaith dialogue or he didn't even come to do lifestyle evangelism. He didn't come to build synagogues. He didn't come to be a moral influence in society. He didn't come simply to be an example to people that they would follow. He didn't even come just to heal people, although we know that he did that. He came to preach. His ministry was saturated with preaching. In fact, one of the reasons I read the context here was we see that not only did Jesus preach, but John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by preaching. It says in verse 4, it says that John the Baptist appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming. That's the same word, preaching here. Or in verse 7, it says, and he preached. And we could even go further back and say, but he didn't only use John the Baptist, he used Isaiah and Ezekiel and Micah. He used the prophets to give these prophecies and preach these prophecies to prepare the way for Jesus, who is the ultimate preacher. Jesus' purpose was to preach. You can look a little bit further down, Mark chapter 1, verse 38 and verses 39. And Jesus says, and he said to them, let us go to the next town so that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus points to preaching as the reason that he came. 
In fact, if we go over to the book of Luke, Jesus summed up his ministry task and he refers to Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2 as a prophecy about what the Messiah is supposed to do. Luke chapter 4 verses starting in verse 18. If you remember this, Jesus went into the synagogue, he got out the scroll of Isaiah, turned almost to the end of it, and he read just a couple of verses. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to tell the good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set oppressed people free, and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. It's all about preaching. That was his task. That was his main ministry method But not only that, Jesus then took the disciples and he preached to the disciples and then he appointed them and it says in Mark chapter 3 verse 14, he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to do what? Preach. He wanted them to preach as well. Jesus also prophesied that the gospel would be preached to all nations, Mark 13, verse 10, and the gospel first must be proclaimed, same word there, preached to all nations. And of course, we know the, the Great Commission in Matthew and also in Mark, Mark 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole, gener- to the whole creation. So it's a, it's a task that we have as well. I like how the Puritans said it. You may have heard it before. God had only one son, and he made a preacher of him. Jesus could have been a politician. He could have been a doctor. He could have been a rich and generous businessman. He could have been a military general. He could have been a philosopher. He could have been a lot of things. He could have been a lot of good things. But he was primarily a preacher. The fact that God the Father made him a preacher tells us of how God thinks about preaching. His value of preaching, preaching the Word, preaching His Word, explaining His revelation and His truth, His thoughts, and showing His character to people so that they would believe it and understand it and obey it. And it's interesting, when I think about this, it both strikes terror in me and and awe to think that I'm engaged in the same ministry method as Jesus was. The same approach that Jesus used when he ministered, and it's terrifying because I do not feel able to do it. I do not feel worthy to do it. But it's awing and humbling knowing that God has chosen this method. And that despite our inability, he uses imperfect people to preach his word. And that tells us about his grace and that tells us about his sovereignty and that tells us about his love to, to use people to preach his word and to declare his truths. And ultimately, I understand that I must preach because I realize that I am wholly unable to affect change, real and lasting change in your lives. I can't even do it in my life. 
And it is the Word that changes. And the Word comes through preaching. And so when we understand that correctly, there is a humility that comes with preaching and that comes to the preacher because he understands that this is not me, this is God. These are not my thoughts, these are God's thoughts. I'm not asking you to follow me, I'm asking you to follow God. I'm not asking you to believe me, I'm asking you to believe God because I know that's what will change you. And I can get up and give you all kinds of tips and tricks and ideas and things that might help you temporarily, but ultimately that's kind of empty if I'm not preaching God's Word. Biblical preaching is an acknowledgement of the fact that neither I nor you can make yourself better, but only the Word of God through the power of the Spirit and the life of Christ can make any difference. Jesus preached because beyond dying on the cross, that was the best thing He could do for people. It was better than healing their diseases. A thousand times better than healing their diseases. He didn't heal everyone, but he preached to everyone he could. And we have his preaching in his word here for us today. In fact, if you think about it, without Jesus preaching, his death on the cross would be empty. Nobody would know what to do with it. And that's why we say we, we preach the cross of Christ. The cross demands preaching, and the preaching points to the cross. They're both necessary for salvation. John, of course, gives us a spectacular picture of Christ preaching, his embodiment of revelation in John chapter 1, where he says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus didn't become a preacher when he came to earth. He already was the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The Word is intrinsically tied to Christ's preaching. Life is intrinsically tied to Christ's preaching. Do you see that connection here? The Word and life? God is truth, and God is the Word, and one does not exist without the other. That is to say, the, the truth of God does not exist apart from the Word of God, and vice versa. God is a speaking, communicating God. He does not hide His truth from us. He gives it to us, and He expects us to listen, to believe, to understand, and to respond. In fact, it's God's Word that made everything. I really find it fascinating that if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, Moses begins his writings, he begins the Bible by saying, and God said. In the creation account, ten times Moses repeats this, and God said, and it was. You know why he did that? Because he was speaking to a group of people that did not have God's revelation, that were all 
about worshiping other gods that they had in Egypt. And he said, listen, I want you to understand and know the God who speaks. It is his word, it is his truth, and when he speaks, it is true, and it never changes. It always happens exactly as he says every time without an exception. His word is powerful. It's not my word. Let's not get caught up in word of faith thinking that I can do what God did in Genesis chapter 1. I can't. I tell my kids to do the dishes, and it doesn't happen. My word is weak. God's word is powerful. He tells the earth to just appear and it appears. The stars to appear and they appear. And if he tells us that we can have salvation in Jesus Christ, it will happen. If he tells us that we can have forgiveness and eternal life, it will happen. As sure as the stars appeared and the sun appeared and the earth appeared, your salvation will appear. It will happen because God said it. That is the power of his word. That is the power of preaching. Jesus preached because he has always been preaching. Jesus preached because life comes through the word. Jesus preached because this is the primary way that man comes to know and understand God's character and nature. Jesus preached to expose the sinful heart of man. Jesus preached to show God's attitude concerning money, marriage, anger, family, children, suffering, anxiety, and much, much more. Jesus preached about God the Father, about the Holy Spirit, and he preached about himself. Jesus preached to bring people to repentance and faith in him. But what did Jesus really preach? Again, we don't have to guess. It says right here, he proclaimed what? The gospel of God and then the kingdom. There's two aspects of what Jesus preached that I think are very important for us to remember here. And first of all, it says he preached the gospel of God. There are many kinds of preaching today. There's psychological preaching, there's pop cultural preaching, there's emotional preaching, there's historical preaching, there's academic preaching. There's traditional preaching, there's fashionable preaching, there's let me pat you on the back and tell you how amazing you are and pump you up with emotions and send you out the door to meet your destiny preaching. (laughs) Jesus didn't preach that. I don't preach that. The only preaching that we find in the New Testament and the only preaching that we find that the apostles did is called gospel preaching. Gospel preaching. That is what we preach. Because that's what Jesus preached. And that's what Paul preached. And that's what Peter preached. That's the preaching that we see in the New Testament. And Mark just says it right here. It's preaching the gospel of God. There's a number of characteristics of gospel preaching that I think are important for us to understand here. I want to give you six characteristics of gospel preaching. First of all, gospel preaching declares the character and nature of God. Secondly, gospel preaching exposes the sinfulness of man. Gospel preaching also calls for a change in heart and mind. We'll get to that a little bit later. That's what we call repentance. 
Gospel preaching focuses on the need for sincere faith and absolute dependence upon the work and person of Jesus Christ. Gospel preaching offers hope, forgiveness, reconciliation with God, eternal life, the power of the Spirit, and it offers Christ. In fact, if there's one thing that gospel preaching does, maybe more than anything else, gospel preaching preaches Christ. Its focus is Christ. Christ is the solution of our, to our problems. He is the object of our faith. He is the recipient of our praise. He is the center of our worship. He is the comforter of our souls. He is the hope of our heart. He is the purpose of our life. He is the joy of our existence. We find that all in gospel preaching. And in fact, if you look at Jesus' preaching, remember Jesus preached himself a lot. Look at the book of John. And Jesus, he's preaching. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus preached a lot about himself. We ought to be preaching a lot about Jesus. Peter, when he preached his first sermon in Pente at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he got up and said, Therefore let all the people of Israel understand beyond a doubt that God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. His sermon was about Christ. It wasn't about how to have a better marriage or how to raise your kids. And I'm not saying that's not important. It is. But it was primarily about Christ. We know that Paul preached Christ. He tells us that very clearly. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come and tell you about God's secret with rhetorical language or wisdom. We talked about these. That's a different kind of preaching, right? For while I was with you, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus, the Messiah, and Him crucified. It's, it's clear. That was the focus of Paul's preaching. You know, there's two difficult groups of people to preach to, and I've had experience preaching to both of them. There are those who have never heard the gospel and those who have ever heard the gospel. Do you understand? Those who have never heard the gospel and those who have ever heard the gospel. And the first group is hard to preach to because those who have never heard the gospel, as Christina was saying, you have to give them the absolute basics. Who is God? Who is man? What is sin? What is death? What is eternity? What is, you have to drill down to these basics and repeat them over and over again and look for different ways to say them. And I know that in the soldier's ministry that oftentimes it just, I, I had... It was sometimes a little bit frustrating, but yet exciting to preach to them things they'd never heard before. And you've got to think. How do you explain this to someone who's never heard it? But then there's the group that's ever heard the gospel. That means they heard it so many times, they kind of think that they don't really need it anymore. You know, that stuff, I heard it in Sunday school. Give me something more interesting now. Just tell me how to do my life. 
That would be good. And they kind of think, you know, I kind of know the gospel. I know I've heard a lot of times. They're not moved when they hear the gospel preached anymore. They're not moved in the spirit. They think that they need something deeper, something more practical, something more interesting, something new, something beyond the gospel. And that is undoubtedly a terrible place to be. And that's a harder group to preach to, honestly. And that's the group that I usually find in churches that are usually sitting where you guys are sitting. You think, you know, I don't need those gospel basics anymore. But you know, it says that this is the gospel of God. It is a gospel to the sinners and not to the righteous. Jesus himself said, I can't preach to the sinners, not the righteous. That's a condemnation primarily on us. On those who think that, hey, we're so righteous, we don't need the gospel anymore. And let's not pretend that we don't sometimes feel that way. Let's not pretend that sometimes we feel like, you know, we're just, we're, we're a little bit beyond that. So righteous, so holy, and so spiritual that we no longer see the need to submit ourselves to good gospel preaching regularly. And let me ask you, has your spirit grown dull to the gospel? Do you not know the, the quickening of, of the heart and, and the soul when you hear the gospel preached? Do you no longer see that there is life, real life, in those words of the gospel? Do you not have a desire to see the gospel more, hear it more, to see Christ more, to know it more in your life? The soul that knows God and seeks God never grows tired of hearing the gospel because it knows that that's the only source of true life. He might hear it a thousand times and it's not enough for him. Others might look at him perplexed and think, why are you going to that church? Why are you going to hear that sermon? Why are you reading that Bible? Didn't, didn't you hear it enough? Didn't you read it enough? He says, no. I wanted more. The gospel is not enough. I want to hear it more. Even though it is the same gospel, it is new. Even though it is the same gospel, it is more glorious every time we hear it. The soul that believes the gospel with all of his heart, he doesn't need to be cajoled and coaxed and convinced to go and listen to good preaching. He wants to go there. He doesn't look for excuses to stay away from there. He looks for excuses to go there. He runs to the church and to the Bible study and to hear what he knows is the only thing that will really bring him comfort and hope and that will really bring lasting change to his life. So Jesus preached the gospel. But there's another aspect to the content of Jesus' preaching. It says that Jesus preached the kingdom of God. We must remind ourselves that Jesus, when he preached the kingdom of God, it really shocked those who were listening to him. For those of us who have been in church a long time and we read through these wonderful, beautiful stories in the gospel, 
oftentimes I think that we have a tendency to make them more like into children's stories. Oh, wasn't it so nice? Oh, wasn't Jesus just so, you know, perfect and nice and kind? He wasn't always that way. And some of those things that we read, they, they, they were very difficult for them to accept. They were shocking. In fact, how do we know that they were shocking? Verse 14 says, after John was arrested. Jesus was baptized by John, right? And after John was arrested, Jesus started preaching. And then what happened to Jesus? He got arrested. He got killed for his preaching. I think it's Stephen Lawson that says the problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them. I'm telling you, it makes a difference how you preach. And so his preaching of the kingdom of God was revolutionary. It went against the way they thought, against their worldview. At times it was harsh. It was difficult. So they said it was difficult to understand sometimes. And some people hated him for it. They just hated him altogether. And that's why he got killed. You know, what, what sets kingdom preaching apart from other preaching is that, well, Jesus literally says, the kingdom is not of this world. So here's, here's the thing, friends. When you see preaching or when you hear preaching that is primarily focused on things of this world, on things that you have and things that you do and things that you want, it's not kingdom preaching. When you hear preaching that is focused primarily on God, on Christ, on truth, on things that you believe, that's gospel preaching and that's kingdom preaching. It's not of this world. That's what Jesus told Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. When you hear preaching that is primarily focused on things that are temporary, it's not kingdom preaching. When it's primarily focused on things that are eternal, it probably is kingdom preaching. Those are the significant things in life. We just have a tendency to flip it all upside down and turn it around, focus on the things that are insignificant, the things that are temporary, the things that will leave us. And Jesus said, no, the kingdom is about eternity. The things that will never leave you. So Jesus preached the kingdom of God. And I want to give you a number of characteristics of the kingdom of God. I won't give you all the verse references for this, but if you ask me later, I can give them to you. The kingdom of God preaching is not about temporary, but about eternal. It is not about external, but about internal. It is not about comfort, but about the cross. It is not about how to be seen by people and put on good appearances, but how to be known by God. It is not about seeking glory, but about giving glory. It is not about man's rules, but about God's reign. And primarily, kingdom preaching is about God. It's about God. It is preaching that focuses us upon God and upon Jesus. Paul says we do not preach ourselves. How do you preach yourself? 
I would hate to preach myself. It'd be the boringest sermon ever. Well, this morning I got up at 7, then I went and made myself some coffee. You should do that too sometimes. Then I had to wake the kids up, and then, I mean, why preach yourself? Preach God. Kingdom preaching is preaching about God. There's a final thing that we need to look at here. So Jesus preached. Jesus preached the gospel. Jesus preached the kingdom. But there is a goal in all of this. Why did he do it? What was his point? And it tells us also clearly here two things, repentance and faith. So important to remember that. When we talk about preaching, the goal is repentance and faith. So, you know, we could, we could read this, this verse 15, and we, we read it as maybe people have a tendency to read it today. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So be entertained and stay positive. No, that's not what he says. So be your best self. So be in the moment. So reach your potential and accomplish your goals. So try a little harder, because the kingdom of God is here, so just try a little harder. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. Just repent and believe. It's a lot better. It's actually a lot easier. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The goal of gospel preaching is not behavior modification. That is a side effect of gospel preaching. We, we need to be clear about that. We're not just tell, up here telling you how you should live your life. We're telling you what is true and what you should believe and that will change how you live your life. But just, I think it's in our nature that we just want to say, just tell me what to do. I remember we had this conversation with our kids many, many times. And we say, you know, young man and a young woman, your tone of voice is not right. I said, well, but I said the right thing. No, but it's your tone of voice. Well, just tell me how to say it. And I'll say it how you want me to say it. And we're like, but that's not going to work either. We just want you to be good. We just want you to be kind. And I can't make them be. They have to change their belief to change their be. I can't make you be, but God can. So the goal of gospel preaching is repentance and belief. Too often, I think we as parents especially, we focus on behavior modification. We're telling our kids all the time, you got to do this, can't do that, that's wrong, that's bad, this is good, got to wear these clothing, not those, don't get a tattoo, don't smoke, don't drink. And they grow up and they leave the church and are like, how come they didn't believe? All we told them was what you should and shouldn't do. We never really had the goal of, I want you to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We never really focused on that, those heart matters of 
It's, it's much more important, your heart attitude towards God. You need to have a repentant heart, not just do the right things. I mean, my goodness, anybody can do the right things when people are looking. We're all really good at that. We're especially good at that on Sunday morning. And so, so we're training our children and telling them what to do all the time. And then they leave us and we're like, why didn't you believe? Because we never focused on that. We never really called them to that. All they saw was do or don't do. Jesus preached repentance and faith. That's the goal of all true biblical preaching. Anything beyond that is secondary at most because it will not have eternal consequences. Repentance and faith will. Behavior modification won't. And when we just talk about how to behave, it ignores the true power of God. In fact, it, sometimes we, we get confused and we think all the power is within myself to do what's right. And I'm just a little more disciplined and write down a few more things, set my goals. I can change myself, but, but I can't. So Jesus called people to repent. What do you call them to repent of? Jesus called them to stop relying primarily on their own self-righteousness. Matthew 23 is probably the scariest chapter in the Gospels for me. Jesus spends a whole chapter condemning the religious leaders and telling people, don't be like them. They do the right things, but they aren't the right things. That's the danger of religion without repentance. He called them to stop relying on their own self-righteousness. He called them to stop relying on their family heritage. He stopped them to stop relying on their wealth. He told them to stop relying on anything and everything except one thing, which is Jesus. And so he called them to repent it's not a word that we use very often today, so I want to just clarify a couple of things when I talk about repentance. First of all, repentance is not simply feeling bad for what I've done. It includes that often. But it's not simply feeling bad for what I've done. I like what Thomas Watson says about this. He says, Sense of guilt is enough to breed terror. Infusion of grace breeds repentance. If pain and trouble were sufficient, sufficient to repentance, then the damned in hell should be most penitent, for they are most in anguish. Repentance depends upon a change of heart. There may be terror, yet without change of heart. So let's not get confused and think, oh, he's very upset about what he's done or his sin. That doesn't necessarily mean he's repented. Also, repentance is not a means of self-atonement. Sometimes we get it. In fact, that was the whole purpose of the point of one of the main points of the Reformation. They took this term repent here and, and, and they saw it as penance. Okay, you, you sinned, you, you need to go out and you need to do a bunch of good things now to pay for those sins. No, that's not repentance. That is technically what's called penance. And it's not in the Bible. Also, repentance is not just a vow to change my life. I mean, I do that like every January 1st, and it lasts for a month, okay? It doesn't work. 
It's not just a vow to say, okay, I'm going to get better, I'm going to stop doing this and start doing that. And also, repentance is not just an act that is done at the end of the service, at an altar call or raising your hand. It's not just a prayer that's prayed. Repentance is a condition of the heart. So there are four ingredients to biblical repentance. And the first, of the first is this, a clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be very clear in our explanation of the gospel for there to be repentance. If we're not, it is not biblical repentance. A clear understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, a recognition and sorrow over personal sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. Not sorrow because I got caught. Not sorrow because I wish I was better than somebody else. Not sorrow because I just feel bad for myself. Sorrow because we have offended a holy God. Thirdly, biblical repentance includes faith. Faith that wholly relies upon Jesus and trusts Him for forgiveness and salvation and life. And fourth, ingredient in biblical repentance is it produces fruit. I already talked to you about that we don't preach behavior modification, but we do talk about what is right and wrong. We do talk about how we should live and how we shouldn't live. But that is fruit. And for somebody that has said, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, and you don't see any change. You don't see any fruit in their life. We have to say, I'm really not sure that that was true heart change. So biblical repentance always produces fruit. And there's a final aspect, and I'll close with this, of repentance that I think is important for us to remember. I want to go back to Martin Luther and the Reformation on this. Martin Luther, when he penned his 95 Thesis to the door, he started it with this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent! He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What does that mean? Friends, the believer has a spirit of repentance. It doesn't... So, yes, there is repentance to salvation, and then there is a life that is typified by a spirit of repentance. In fact, even in this verse here, the word that Jesus uses for repentance could more technically or literally be translated, be repenting and be believing the gospel. To believe is to continue in belief. To repent is to continue in that spirit of repentance. What does Jesus say when he preached the, the, the Sermon on the Mountain? Matthew chapter two, uh, 5, he, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the spirit of repentance. The spirit of repentance is a humble spirit. A spirit of repentance is a broken spirit. A spirit of repentance is a spirit that understands that I can't do it on my own. I need Christ in my life. And that ought to be growing in each of us every day as we hear the gospel over and over again. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus preached the gospel of God and the kingdom of God. We pray that you would help us to believe and to repent.
that our lives would be typified by that. That we would long to hear the gospel again and again because we know that it is the source of life for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, thank you, Caleb, for, for bringing the word of God. Um, let's, let's respond. Let's, let's end this formal time together with seeing the first verse of the, the great hymn, Be Thou My Vision, in light of what we just heard. It says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Be, Jesus, be, be our vision. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Our, our thoughts be Jesus. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.